0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy and the War Room Podcast Editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode continues our series on great strategists, and today's subject, Baron Antoine-Henri de Jomini, is both loved and reviled, central and marginalized, and in short, we're ambivalent and I think we struggle to figure out exactly what to do with him in professional military education and within the realm of strategic studies more broadly. So I have as my guest today uh, two historians and experts to help us make sense of Géminy, his work, and his legacy, especially for the U.S. Army. I'm joined today by Dr. Bill Johnson, who is a longtime faculty member at the U.S. Army War College in the Department of National Security and Strategy, and actually by the time this airs, Bill will be a distinguished former faculty member at the War College as his retirement is imminent, Uh, but he has kindly agreed to work until the last possible moment and record this with us. Uh, Bill is a historian of land warfare and an expert on the 20th century American military and has served as our course director for the Theory of War and Strategy uh, course for several years, so he's really familiar with how do we put Jomeny in in PME.
2: Good morning, Jackie, and thanks for having me.
1: Great. And then second is Dr. Khan Crane. Khan is a regular guest here on A Better Peace. Uh, He is the chief of the Historical Services Division of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and an expert in the history of the U.S. Army, counterinsurgency, and an all-around go-to guy for questions about military history and its influence within the U.S. Army.
0: Yeah, Jackie, glad to be here.
1: All right, so welcome to the War Room. And uh, with that, we'll turn to Jomeny. Uh, so, Bill, we'll turn it over to you first um, to tell us about who Jean Monnet was, his sort of biography or background, and what we maybe need to know about him and his time in order to read what he has to, to say
2: well. Okay. Interestingly, uh, though his name sounds fr- French, he's Swiss, uh, he has the benefit of a long and productive life. Uh, He's a child prodigy of sorts. Uh, His family initially wants him to go into the banking business. Uh, They send him to Paris, where he becomes involved in the revolutionary fervor of the time and begins a lifelong association with the military. Uh, Again, as part of this prodigy business, he quickly attaches himself to the right people. Uh, He um, becomes—his mentor is Marshal Ney one of napoleon's favorite marshals Uh, and he campaigns with the french army uh throughout most of the major campaigns of napoleon's success Uh, later in life he Leaves the Napoleonic army largely over some confrontations with uh, Napoleon's chief of staff Berthier, who does not have the same high opinion of Germany that Germany holds of himself, uh, and goes into service initially with those allies fighting Napoleon, and eventually becomes uh, associated with the Russian army, where he serves for over 50 years in one form or another. Throughout this entire 50, enti-
1: like 50. Five, zero?
2: 50. Five, zero. So he's old. He has—he's uh, he's 90 years old by the okay. time he dies, which for his age, for that age is a considerable longevity, right. which is part of the reason for his success.
1: It just sticks around.
2: <laughs> if you outlive <laughs> all of your competitors, uh, you get to control the narrative. You
1: get the last word. Okay, so, sorry, I was shocked by 50 years of service in the Russian army, which
2: is his second— Well, it's off and on. Much yeah. of that time okay. was actually spent in Paris. Um, More he, pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> But he has a great influence. He helps establish the Russian military academy. He talks about strategy. He helps structure their army. He's a commentator for the Crimean War. He is a trainer, educator of many of the Tsars' children and subsequent Tsars. And so he has a great deal of influence throughout uh, Europe, throughout most of the first half of the 19th century. He's a prolific writer. He's a very good operational level historian. He conducts a lot of uh, studies that he uses to create his larger bodies of work. Uh, He is unafraid to um, borrow copiously from others. And um, some would say this is collaboration. Others might not be quite so kind. Uh, (laughs) But he has the benefit of being able to take advantage of significant works of others to blend them into his own, to come at some form of synthesis. Interestingly, I think, from the perspective that we're going to talk about today, uh, I see him as more a, one of the final products of the Enlightenment, the idea of this ability to find scientific principles from larger phenomenon, distill them down into key principles that anyone can use, and this happens to be, in John case, war, and strategy, but those key points that if anyone follows them, at least according to Jomini, mm-hmm. uh, you follow my principles, mm-hmm. and you too will be successful because I have derived these from the great Napoleon.
1: Right. And that he think that war, like anything else, is a knowable thing. The world is a knowable phenomenon, and we can observe and and figure out laws and rules that govern that world. And so that's a that's a. We'll talk a little bit about Clausewitz. Um, Later, but I think that's a that's a key thing to keep in mind. So when we think about all of the texts, um, there are a couple that stand out as being key texts or things that we go back to even now over and over and over. Um, so, could you tell us a little bit about what he wrote?
2: Yeah, he writes the tr- his his treatise, uh, "The Art of War," which is the predominant uh, document that many uh, individuals throughout, and I think Con will cover this later, in terms of both the United States Army as well as the European armies. It's it's important, I think, that he writes in French, uh, because French is literally the lingua franca of the educated and enlightened at the time. Uh, This guy, Clausewitz, happens to write in German, which is not as widely known, and so he's capable of writing in a language that is the common language of intellectuals, uh, particularly of military intellectuals, because, again, Napoleon being obviously Corsican, but French— He's very popular. Writing in the French allows Jomny to make his uh, times known. He's very prolific. Writes a lot of articles, many books, campaign histories, but it's really his treatise on the art of war that distills all of these things down Mm -hmm. into key points, and he writes this very early in his career and continues to promote it throughout his life. Yeah, and revise it. And revise it. And revise
1: it, and this gets to his longevity and the ability to, to, like you said, take what other people have written and incorporate it so you can put... The Art of War, sort of side by side with other other texts, and you can really see the the influences um, and his the way his thinking maybe changes over time. So what? Um, and we'll ask both of you this, but what are the central ideas to this text, The Art of War?
2: If you could encapsulate it down, it's that war is based on the offensive, and it's massing the appropriate number of troops and bodies at the decisive point and engaging with high level of energy, which he never quite really defines, but it's bringing the most massive points, most massive amounts of troops concentration on the decisive point. And he has a long series of Principles for determining what those points are and how to get them. Uh, interestingly enough, Jomini is also the first person that really talks about logistics. And he sees it not necessarily as we do today, which is partially the, the supplying of, of war and warfare, but for him, logistics was also the ability to mass on the battlefield. For uh, Jomini, and as well as I think for Clausewitz, the idea for them, military strategy was the movement of forces on the map, bringing them to bear in the appropriate theater of operations at the decisive mm-hmm. point. That's much more jomini But it's this idea that you have to mass. It is the offensive. And logistics is what allows you to bring all of those things to bear at the critical point.
1: Okay, so Khan, if we think about how jomini has been sort of interpreted and, and taken over the years, does that central point stay the same or do we see sort of reinterpretations of it over time
0: well it it is the major influence on the the 19th century but he's gonna jfc Fuller is gonna the one who's gonna transfer his ideas more to the 20th century and move into the more of the principles of war idea where where jomany again I, I have a copy here this is a, a copy of an 1862 cadet notebook where the dennis Mahan is teaching Jomini to cadets and a series of lectures and this is uh, the, how the third lecture starts off on strategy. Germany's de- defines strategy by the science of making war on a map. Strategy is the embodiment of rules and principles drawn from experience. Strategical operations is nothing more than the movement of troops for something decisive. So that's kind of, again, just what Bill said, that's kind of the essence of Germany that's being taught at West Point and in military academies in the 19th in 19th century. But again, the 20th, it starts to expand. And and, and when you get Fuller and others who start to try to draw even more principles out of it, and I think it starts to change Mm -hmm. a bit when you get into the 20th century.
1: When we think about what Jomini has observed in the Napoleonic era in particular, this seems like an entirely reasonable observation for him to make uh, in, in many cases. And then we think about maybe the deviations from that in the peninsular campaign in some other um, other places where we know Napoleon maybe had trouble but if Germany is watching Napoleon's great victories then finding the decisive point on the map literally and getting the the people to it and putting them on that location seems seems totally fine. So is this a, is this an example where something that works in one context is just difficult to translate? into into other contexts? Is it difficult to to move it forward into the 20th century or even into the 21st century?
2: Well, let, let me take a stab at that okay. because I think part of us, you mentioned Spain, which is quite important. Germany's approach mm-hmm. to Spain is just don't do that anymore. Don't go there. Don't do that. Yeah. That's not Napoleonic. It's going to consume you.
1: That feels like solid advice, actually.
2: Well, and and I would argue, and Khan may chime in or not, that uh, that's still a tendency in in modern right. armies
0: that's the American reaction yeah. after Vietnam the same thing don't uh, do that anymore
1: well in 2019 <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah 2019 the, 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 2000,
1: the, new, the new field the, uh,
0: manual right the, the 2012 the defense planning guidance says we're not going to do counterinsurgency yeah. or stability ops anymore
2: and so I, I think there's there's multiple lessons to be learned there's positive lessons to follow which I think Gi does with his principles of war and and his text the art of war but there's also the Here's the lessons to avoid, the negative lessons. Don't do this because this is not how you're going to succeed in a Napoleonic manner.
1: Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about how Jomini's work spreads. It's in French, uh, so it's it's within the sort of military intellectual community for a long time. Um, why is it why is it persistent? Is it just because it has something, That's sort of soothing and and comforting to say? Do we just like it?
0: Well, I'll I'll, I'll take that one. If if you're trying to set up a a fledgling professional military education system in the 19th century, and you've got these two, you've got the philosopher of war, Clausewitz, who basically says, to master war, you've got to be a genius. Then you've got this other guy, Jomini, who says, boy, if you apply these these principles, you can be successful. Which one are you going to base your education on? So obviously, that's the appeal of Jomini. Is he, he applies? He's, he there's an engineering solution to war. If you apply these principles, you'd be successful. You can teach it, so you can bring in young men from all over the United States and put them in a place like the U.S. Military Academy, and you teach them these principles and send them out to be successful leaders. Uh, it, it's the it's the attraction of his presentation and 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 the appeal of his his, his this this scientific solution that that appeals to professional military education,
2: especially in the 19th century, and then carries on into the 20th as well. Throughout the conduct of war, I think what generals and leaders have tried to do is bring order out of chaos. And Clausewitz, very forthrightly says war is going to be chaos mm-hmm. and it's going to be chaotic. Jomini, on the other hand, says, no, here's how you can stop the chaos. You can reduce the chaos. It is possible to apply these and to provide some form of solution that anybody can master. And that's a decided difference between the two mm-hmm. approaches. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and we see that difference in, in sort of the different sides that they're on, too, right? Right. Jomini's on the winning side an awful lot and Clausewitz is on the on the losing side um, mm-hmm. in some in some cases. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I, I think about in my own my own classroom and my teaching is that of course we want to bring order to chaos. That's the that's the point of strategy in in some some cases is to link causes to effects and to have decisive effect on a on a problem. And so it's not unusual that that we want jomini like solutions to these things even as we understand maybe the importance of Clausewitz and, and understanding the importance of unpredictability in in this problem that we that we face um i think a lot of times Jomini and Clausewitz are sort of pitted against each other right that there's a, a like a cage match <laughs> of sorts or that we have to maybe <laughs> choose between one and that if, if we envision ourselves as Clausewitzian, we have to toss Jomini into the, into the dustbin. Um, and I, so I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with that sort of dichotomy, even as we see, um, important differences between the two. Is, is it, is it just a difference in style or substance or is there room for both Jomini and Clausewitz in professional military education?
2: I'm a moderation in all things kind of person. And so I want to take the best of both. And so the way I portray it to students and others is that Clausewitz is a philosopher of war and strategy who occasionally delves into the scientific nature of strategy. Jomini is by and large a strategist who occasionally delves into the philosophy of war. They do overlap with each other. They are not always contradictory. Much of what PME, professional military education, talks about is Clausewitz as the philosopher of war. We don't talk about two-thirds of the book, which is really about how to fight in a 19th century context, which is more of what Jomini does, but but then tries to draw the generalization that it's just not the 19th century. You can apply this broadly. And I think if you look at the wars of the 19th century, particularly the German wars of unification, Prussian-Austrian war, the Franco-Prussian war, you can see large elements of Jomini in play, the decisive point at the decisive time with the largest concentration of forces. It's successful. And so the success of the Germans in the 1860s and 1870s drives the other militaries of the world to look at how the Germans accomplished their strategy, national level, and it's very Germanian as opposed to Clausewitzian. But that doesn't mean it's either or, in my mind.
0: Yeah, I, I always try to present it as, I know it, it's oversimplification, but Clausewitz is about the art and the business, the commerce of war Germany is much more with the science of war, and obviously there's there are elements of all in, in the approach we have today. And 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 my concern has always been that we Americans, especially, have been very much attracted to the science of war and this 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 this, this, this scientific approach, this engineering approach. And and so I I think the danger is more of tilting more of too much one way or the other.
2: Uh, whereas as, as Bill says, a balance you really need a balance mm-hmm. of the approaches. I think the one of the key differences that. Uh, I typically home in on is the the civil-military relationship that occurs. For Clausewitz, war is a continuation of policy with the addition of other means. Jomini mm-hmm. takes a much more, the king or the statesman decides that there will be war, turns it over to the general to fight the war. The general fights the war, wins, and turns it back over to mm-hmm. the monarch. Now, both of them say that the chief of the military should be part of the king's cabinet, but there's a much broader division of duties and responsibilities under Germany, and I think that also greatly influences U.S. civil-military relations to today. Give the military the job, the task, leave us right. alone, and we'll hand you back to the pol- political this leadership. This idea
1: of, of sort of objective control and a Huntingtonian model of really distinct civil and, and military or political and military Spheres. I think that's. I think that's a great point. It sort of feeds. Jomini feeds into that um, sort of bifurcation.
0: And that's really. It, it's a product of the, the late nineteenth century when the U.S. the American military is really becoming professionalized. And they look at the Prussians and victory of 1870, and that's a very von Moltkean model where, you know, okay, King, give me the give me the war, mm-hmm. and I'll turn after we win, and I'll turn it back over to you for the peace. And that has. I I agree. I, I think that's always been kind of the ideal. For the American military that that's the approach yeah. they'd like to they'd like to take
1: yeah does does jomini in in the things that he writes talk about what we might consider the the sort of before or or after or is it really contained into the into the sort of combat? I know we're not phasing wars anymore, but um does it stick to to the fighting
2: I think by and large it does he he makes the point. Uh, very specifically, that it's the statesman's responsibility to determine when to go to war. How the war is fought is the responsibility mm-hmm. of the general and of the military, and it's a very clear cleavage in his mind on mm-hmm. how that occurs. Very different from the Clausewitzian idea of the trinity or the idea of continuation of right, politics. That, that
1: politics are suffused throughout the, throughout the conflict. Um, when we think about Jomini again in this U.S. military context. So we've gotten him into the military academies. He's he's part of the 19th century uh, vocabulary and thinking of U.S. military officers. Um, there's a there's a critique, right, that we see Jominian principles um, maybe applied and badly applied in the American Civil War and then through the First World War. Um, is that is that critique a reasonable one?
0: Well, I mean again Jomini is is not alone in this process there are disciples and and those that spread his word and Dennis Hart Mahan teaches Jomini at West Point for 40 years from 1830 to 1870 so he influences a whole generation of leaders though it's funny I, I again I've got a copy here of of a cadet notebook he he finally got into Jomini at the very last set of lectures of the military art and engineering course for the for the firsties for the seniors and I've read somewhere where somebody asked Ulysses Grant somewhere down the road about the influence of Germany on his thinking, and he kind of gave him a look like, "Who? Who?" <laughs> uh, didn't pay. You know, I, I'm not sure how much attention cadets are paying. Yeah, on the, 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 I,
1: I I taught firsties yeah. in, uh, in <laughs> April and May. Yeah, that's right. So you, that's that's when you're getting
0: it. So you understand what what <laughs> it, I'm not sure how much stuck. So I'm not sure. I don't think Germany deserves a lot of blame for for whatever happened. But 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 he, that is what what is shaping the military academy education. Again, it's kind of the simple approach to his. You know there there are there is a history of some mental infirmity in the Mahan family. I was mentioning to Bill, you teach you teach Germany for forty years and you throw yourself into a paddle wheel, so we got to right. be careful to stay off. So the Bill, how many both.
1: how many years have you been teaching Germany?
2: Uh, about ten now. Okay. All oh right.
0: yeah, we go back to West Point. I figure it's about thirty, so we're getting <laughs> we're getting close. But uh, but uh, and then of course right he, he has cusp. another sign of this mental infirmity. is one of his sons actually goes to the naval academy. And of course, yeah. uh, you know, Alfred Thayer will take the ideas to the Navy as well. And if you look through Mahan's writings, it's, they're very Jomanian as well for the right. Navy. So that that influences not just the Army, but the Navy as well, this very deterministic scientific approach. So that spreads into the 20th century. And then what happens is then in the interwar years, the British military uh, writer J.F.C. Fuller really starts to develop these principles of war and really popularizes this. And he is really the... The next step in this Germanian uh, evolution, and, and and so that we go from Germany to Fuller and the, the, these, and if you read his Foundations of Science of War, it's amazingly he goes through all these definitions of different operations and all the principles apply in play on each one, and has all these mm-hmm. strange diagrams and things, very Germanian geometric diagrams, uh, and that really influences very much the the schools, and that's when you start to see Principles of War show up in American doctrine mm-hmm. and. And so then that spreads as well, and and then so that, that these principles of war are being taught all the way up through World War II and after, and now and I was just showing, and even when when the army after Vietnam, where the U.S. Army finally starts to get a grasp on Clausewitz, and that the main book that is going to do that is Harry Summers' book on strategy. But if you look at Harry Summers' book on strategy, basically what he does is trying to, to try to change Clause, Clausewitz into Germany. Right. He's got chapters on you know Clausewitz. You know, the objective, the offensive, mass economy, force maneuver, <laughs> unity of command, security, and surprise, simplicity. Rattle
1: all of those off still, He right? rattles
0: them off, and that's, he tries to take Clausewitz and shoehorn him into this yeah. very Principles of War structure. So it it, it stays with us. Yeah, I love, there's
1: a, there's, a, there's a slide out of a doctrine manual that I love, which is basically Jomini and Principles of War about decisive points and mass. And then you add the words fog and friction to it, and it's, I call it the, the sort of the jominization of of Clausewitz and and vice versa, so as if adding fog and friction are going to complexify your your thinking sufficiently to um. And that
0: that's exactly what Summers this. does. His first the first part of the book is about friction. The second part is he takes he talks principles of war. So that's exactly what what Summers approach is after Vietnam to try to get the American Army to get their handle around this these these ideas these, of Clausewitz. these two,
2: these two ideas. I, I think it's important also. We, the American Army spends a great deal of time talking about Clausewitz in its professional military education, but its doctrine is Jomini. Mm-hmm. So Jomini yes. is the father of what we would call modern operational art. When you look yeah. at z- areas of operation, zones of operation, lines of effort, objective, decisive points, all of these operational art terms that we use today, they all have a basis in Jomini. Right. so. I would make the argument that the American military, but particularly the U.S. Army, is Jomin, Jominian without understanding that they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah, we I talk agree. and read Clausewitz, but we act, act. and perform according to Jomini's operational principles.
1: Is it a difference between the strategic level and the operational level of war and the, the sort of gray area that blends the two together?
2: I think... We would make the argument that operational art is what ties together tactics and strategy. Um, There was a great Strategic Studies Institute publication by two Australians, I believe, whose name escaped me a number of years ago, but it was uh, entitled Alien, How the Operational Art Ate Strategy. And it looks at how the American Army, at least from their critique, has become overly focused on the operational art because it does lend itself to that engineering solution that Khan talked about. It's doctrine, it's how to apply. It avoids all that messy politics stuff that the military doesn't want to get involved in, but which is actually essential to the conduct. And I think it's this emphasis on the operational art, which is a very important aspect, but comes truly into its own being in the late Mm seventies, early eighties, where we have become in my argument, the most proficient practitioners of the operational art. Uh, however, we have sometimes divorced that operational art from the connection to strategy.
0: Well, I mean, Colin Gray says Americans are a strategic that we just don't. That's just not the we way just we don't think. do it. That's right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. So does Jomini then have a place in strategic level education?
0: Well, I think it goes back to this idea of you've got to balance the art and the science, yes, I mean, Germany does have a place. there is there are you know I, I, having gone through the you look at the development of campaign design, campaign design is some way you could say is Germany on steroids which we we push. So yes, there is a there is a role for Germany,
2: uh, but it can't be the only role. Okay, there are time distance factors that you have to take into account, that is a physics problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, I think, in the logistics arena, it is truly an engineering solution. How are you going to get all of the equipment, people, everything necessary for modern war to the appropriate place right. and time? That's the science of it. There is a science that you have to pay attention to. It can't simply be art. It can't simply be silent science. You've got to do both.
1: Okay. So we, we'll wrap up with this last question, which is um, for students and for faculty, for people who are teaching, um, what can we do to read or teach Jomini sort of more or most responsibly?
0: Hmm.
2: I'll, I'll make the argument that we need to study Jomini in the same way that we urge our students to study everything, with a hearty element of skepticism, not cynicism. But skepticism. Question the basic underlying assumptions. Where do they apply and where do they not? There's a reason why we don't read two-thirds of On War. It's because it no longer applies. It's the same thing looking at Jomini. Mm-hmm. Which of these aspects of what he taught, read, wrote on, still adhere today? Which are those that can be useful that we should make use of, and which are those which are well past their use-by date? Yeah, I'd say that that they can't
0: just read Germany. I I would suggest that if you really understand Germany, you've got to read J F C. Fuller's Foundations of Science of War, at least some of it, to kind of see how this approach morphs in the twentieth century. And 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 uh, I think again, read and then I also think you need to uh there there's actually a great piece, I think it was Don Starry did it, where he, he did an analysis of the principles of war and he went through and he said, Okay, now here's Here's where following this principle of war worked, and here's where following this principle hmm. of war failed, and here's where violating this one worked fine. I mean, realize that these are just all guidelines; none of these are locked in stone, and and just realize that that every situation's unique, and 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 Fuller and Germany and Clausewitz are all possible. Uh, that's data to put into your. You're, you're into your program to, to, to help generate the proper solution, but you're going to ha- need elements of all of them to come up okay. with the right the right way to do things.
2: Even Jomini spoke about the there were times when you would need to ignore one right. of his principles, and that might lead to more success than adhering to them blindly. So even though we sort of paint Jomini as this oh, if you just do this by the numbers. He still has an element of art sure. to the application of the principles.
1: Absolutely. So I think that's solid advice as uh, our students are beginning a new year in the resident program. read uh, deeply and broadly, critically, skeptically, um, understand your own institution and organization's history and, and how it how it develops over time and then to think about the relationship between tactics operations. And strategy, and if, if, we can, if we can do that and get our faculty and our students doing those things, I think we'll be off to a good start. So, Bill Kahn, thanks so much for joining me here today on The War Room.
0: A pleasure as always. Yep. A lot of fun as always. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, The War Room Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.